0: I had four death penalty cases, one of which actually I imposed the death penalty as a result of what a jury under Maryland law required me to do. And it came at a time when everybody thought there would never be another death penalty sentence in Prince George's County. And that was appealed uh, four times for different reasons, including post-conviction, was also the subject of three petitions to the Supreme Court of the United States. And my attitude was that I did what I could, I did the best I could. It was ultimately affirmed across the board and by everybody that ever looked at it, either in substance or procedurally. But I thought they had a job to do and, and, and I didn't have any doubt they were trying to do it as well as possible, just as I was. I sat on the appellate court, uh, the Court of Special Appeals seven times. And- Did you uh, like that? I sat on there enough to know that that's not what I wanted to do. <laughs> Good morning and welcome to
1: Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, we have the privilege of having the Honorable Stephen Platt as our guest on the show. Welcome to the program, Judge Platt.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I note that Judge Platt is retired. On the other hand, if one knows anything about him or follows him at all, it almost seems like you were three times as busy as a retiree as you were as a sitting circuit court judge. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, that is a true statement.
1: Was this something that you had anticipated while you were on the bench, or is this kind of just it occurred?
0: No, I. uh, uh, if I have a sin, it's over planning. And uh, I had went on the bench at a fairly young age. And in Maryland, uh, if you are, have been on one of the trial court or the appellate court benches for uh, 16 years and you have attained the youthful age, in my opinion, of 60, you may retire and receive the full pension. I enjoyed being a judge. I still come back. I'm recalled in uh, various jurisdictions across the state. And I do enjoy it, but I wanted to do other things, including consulting as well as uh, essentially ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution, which I really enjoyed and still do.
1: It is a recurrent theme on our program. I have been noted by my producer that I have not given the caveats that uh, precede every one of my shows, and that is that the opinions that are voiced on this show are not those of Howard County Community College, it's faculty, staff, or employees, and it is not our intention to provide specific legal advice to individuals regarding things in their life that really require the redress of the legal system. We recommend that you put together all of the information and meet with a lawyer and discuss the specific facts of your individual set of circumstances. And with that caveat, there's so much to talk about. And we've done approximately 100 shows or so and. We've had judges from the Court of Appeals to the Court of Special Appeals to the Circuit Court to the District Court, everywhere. You have had an amazing career to the extent that you have touched the bases of all of the trial-level judgeships. You were on the Orphan's Court. And I know we've talked a little bit about it with various people in the past, but what is the Orphan's Court and what did you do there?
0: The Orphan's Court is essentially a probate court with some ancillary, uh, ancillary legalese for other and uh, jurisdiction, but most people, particularly those who don't listen to this program or other information providers, think that the Orphans Court is what it sounds like, which is for orphans. Right. The Orphans Court are, a lot judges are elected uh, every four years in what is described as partisan elections. You are the nominee of a party or parties. I was elected when I was 30 years old, along with another colleague that I know you know, Judge Nichols, and uh, it was fun, and uh, which is part of why you want to be a judge. Although you take your job seriously, you take your ju- yourself less so. And we were on the Orphans Court together for seven years, and then uh, and enjoyed a number of cases that you wouldn't have expected. The one that I always cite as a war story is the state of the chief Turkey Tayak of the Piscataway Indians, who gave Judge Nicholson and I the opportunity to. Uh, determine which of the four women claiming to be his wife was his wife.
1: Did you succeed in that?
0: We did. We threw out three and actually found the only time in my entire career that I found common law marriage, which, as you know, is not recognized in Maryland, but is recognized in Maryland if it was contracted in a jurisdiction that does recognize it, which in this case was the District of Columbia. But we had one woman who said that she, uh, on cross-examination, made her living roaming around the United States, claiming to be the wife of wealthy deceased individuals.
1: That's quite a pastime.
0: And that was quite an admission. We had another who said she was married in an Indian ceremony. We wanted to make sure that it wasn't a facsimile of Maryland. It wasn't. So she was ruled out. And then, ironically, or coincidentally, or whatever you want to call it, the same person came back as a different individual with wow. a different name not something you expect on an orphan's court, wow. but it was fun uh, doing it. And frankly, we wrote an opinion, not because there were any great legal issues, but because uh, we knew there was interest in the community, and uh, so I had the pleasure of writing that opinion, and uh, and again, I'm, I'm prone to war stories, so stop me if you don't want to hear them. We like uh, this Wars. The highlight of that Case was when they, there was testimony that, as it turned out, little to do with anything but was entertaining. The Pescatowee Indians, at the time of our litigation, probably numbered somewhere between 25 and 30 people. That was what was left of the tribe. They showed up at Fort Washington Park with a, what they claimed to be their flag, and they threw it into the inserted it into the ground at the security booth. The testimony was that the security uh, officer who was there, it was about 10 minutes till four in the afternoon. And they said, we are hereby reclaiming Fort Washington Park for the Piscataway Indians from the country that stole it from us. He looked at his watch and said, my shift is over in 10 minutes. Could you guys wait? And uh, did they and They did wait. And uh, the uh, claim was uh Presented to the Orphans Court, and as is so often the case in Orphans Court, I ruled it was before me that uh, we had no jurisdiction over who had title to Fort Washington Park, nor did we have any jurisdiction to determine who the chief of the tribe was, and that they would have to go to uh, the my our elders as we used to call them in the Circuit Court. Did they seek redress they in the Circuit did, Court? And, uh, the judge who heard it was a judge who you probably remember. Uh, Judge Malloy, whose nickname was Settling Sam, and uh, he thought it ought to be settled. In fact, it's, he's basically said, I'm not ruling on it, but if I do, this is what will happen. So they withdrew it.
1: Judge Malloy settled me in good seats at Coalfield House for the Turp Games long ago. That's right. So I, I, I appreciated that, <laughs> that inclination on his part. So it's a, an odd, I mean, my perception of the Orphan's Court is that it is a little bit like the Wild West, that an awful lot of the evidentiary rules and things that guide us in circuit court particularly didn't prevail there. Was that your experience?
0: Yeah, at the time that Judge Nichols and I were on there, which is roughly coincided, uh, I was on from 1979 until 1985, late 1985, and he was on roughly that same period of time. There were no rules. Now there are. And uh, in fact, uh, now deceased Judge Lombardi was also an Orphans Court judge, and he was on the Rules Committee for the sole purpose of providing input from the courts. But the rules of evidence, because it, at that time, most Orphans Court judges were lay people who did not know the rules of evidence and couldn't enforce them because they didn't know what they were. And lawyers were somewhat frustrated by that at times. We actually, Judge Nicholson and I, did enforce what we consider to be the Maryland Rules of Evidence, which at that time weren't codified by rule or otherwise, right, except right. in a statute. So we had quite a bit of business. There were some lawyers who needed evidentiary rulings in order to present their case in the most efficient way, seeking somehow to find jurisdiction in Prince George's. Orphan's courts historically, and uh, for my time, the Montgomery County Circuit Court, as you know, Bob, acts as the Orphan's Court Harford County is the same thing. I think they just did that with Howard County, as a matter of fact, in this last session of the General Assembly. I haven't seen the bill yet, but I understand they did do that. So that that's the trend. And uh, there's always been at least one lawyer on on the urban counties, right? And we, uh, Judge Nicholson and I, used to always be for whenever there was a vacancy and we were there, we always were for the filling it with a lawyer. But political reasons always interfered with that, and. Uh, the two times that we ran for office, again, we ran in Prince George's County. If you were on the right ticket, nobody, you could get elected. You didn't, Indeed. nobody had to know who you were, and certainly nobody knew what an orphan's court was. But I, uh, I remember getting a call and asked by a quote, a lady who identified herself only as a concerned voter, wanting to know if I was running for the orphan's court. I said, I was, I'm that person. She said, do you have children? I said, I do. And she said, uh, do you spank them? And I said, I lied and said yes, when they did, deserve did it. get a vote I for never that? Made a vote. Well, I didn't know who she was. And to this day, uh, Judge Nichols and I joke about it. Uh, it. turned out she was the Prince George's chapter chairwoman of the Moral Majority, which was the Jerry Falwell group. Uh, yes. I was the only Orphans Court judge to get endorsed by the Moral Majority, which those who know me found to be at, at best entertaining. Uh, but or ironic, stigmatizing and that's right. So, that court, the other orphans court story, since we're talking about it, is I went door knocking one night when I was 20, 30 years old and I was knocking on doors again. Nobody knew who I was, nobody knew what an orphans court was, but I was on the right ticket, so it was likely I was going to win. But the article there was a front page article in the Washington Post on uh, somewhat of a mentor to me and others, Judge and town deceased, Judge Vincent Familla, who was uh, uh, and sitting in juvenile court at the time and merited the front page of the Washington Post for waving- As he
1: merited 60 minutes with, in media. As he did, and,
0: and he was waving juveniles into adult court in the morning and waving them back in the afternoon so nobody could do anything about it. It was his version of scared straight. But when I knocked on this gentleman's door, in Hillcrest Heights, which at the time was uh, suffering from a lot of, apparently, juveniles burglarizing houses, and I and I introduced myself, and I still remember the, the gentleman was drinking a beer, and he was standing there in a dirty t-shirt, and he looked at me, and he went, we already got a good judge, and I said, you're talking about the guy in the paper, and he said, yes, and I said, he's running as he was running for the circuit court that year, as a matter of fact, so well, he, we're both running together. We're friends. We can, you can vote for both of us. We're running for different courts. And he looked at me and he went, what are you, uh, you going to do? And I said, well, any orphan steps out of line in my courtroom. He's going to jail. <laughs> and he looked at uh, me and he went, that'll be two of you that know what you're doing. Wow. Uh, and I said, um, that's it. I'm running with Vince. Forget about all you other people. That was and a good now, strategy, I dare say. But I was that year the only, there were three candidates countywide, which orphans court judges were running countywide to get over 90,000 votes. I'm quite confident it wasn't because anybody knew who I was, or for that matter, that they were focused on the orphans court. But for some reason that, was, that I kept explaining by the fact that I was endorsed by the moral majority and was running as a running mate with Vince Femia, that's what did it. That's an incongruous mix. That's right. And I I said that's my position, and I'm sticking with it. So two things, just briefly
1: about it. A judges on the orphans court can be non-lawyers. Is that true at district and circuit level as well?
0: No. Okay. Obviously. In fact, there's some litigation going on. There's some some litigation going on right now as to what what the qualifications are as a result of some other things. And your thoughts on all of that? Well, I particularly uh, uh, noted that the Anne Arundel County Circuit Court, uh, Judge Mulford uh, ruled in a case that was by two judges at the t- one non-judge, who's now a judge, and Judge Turner, who now retired, or has recently retired, and he ruled that if you've been a member of the bar of Maryland, and pa- which means you passed the bar exam and the character committee passed on you, you are qualified to be a circuit court and district court judge. That Until then, there was an argument that that wasn't enough, that you had to, quote, practice law, and they got into a debate about what what's the practice of law. I noticed they're having that in a slightly different context downtown with council and city councilman Kenyon McDuffie, who was chair of the House of the Judiciary Committee of the City Council. And they're saying and there's been a ruling now by at least the board, if not the court. I think the court just affirmed uh that he can't be a candidate because he's not quote practice law, so that's it doesn't there. Doesn't seem
1: to hinder, and I don't mean to politicize this, but it doesn't seem to hinder Republican presidents from appointing federal judges who nope. effectively not practice law at all.
0: No, and they're going to have to figure it out. Uh, the other case that that was sort of that not, not a whole lot of people remembered because she she ultimately got elected was when, uh, I can't remember her last name, but her first name is April, and she ran for the circuit court, and she ran uh, after as a libertarian, and there was litigation in the circuit court for Calvert County, and now Court of Special Appeals Chief Judge Wells heard it as a trial judge on the issue of whether or not you can run as a candidate of the Libertarian Party when you're not a member of the Libertarian Party. She was a registered Democrat, and Judge Wells ruled that she could not, and excluded her from the ballot, and the Court of Appeals in record time said, correct.
1: You know, it's a little bit of a tricky business, this who can be a judge and what their qualifications are, but it is scary as a practicing lawyer to have people running these court proceedings who genuinely don't have the experience or knowledge to do so properly.
0: No, and, and those of us who do, you know, can tell the difference, particularly those of us that practice law or were litigators can tell you what the difference is. And frankly, there's an argument that it's some level of experience, but we've never been able to, to center on it. And for political reasons, what usually keeps it from happening is and I don't know whether it'll change. It probably won't in my lifetime. But the election is the only judges that are now elected in partisan elections are circuit court judges. Right. And that's a historical and a political reality that we don't seem to be able to, to get rid of. Those of us that uh, went through the process of being you know, interviewed and, and, and ultimately put on the list and the governor chose, I always call myself the judge in charge of crazies. But I've litigated as a presiding judge. I've been recalled to hear cases in which I would refer to the names of, without naming them, as as disgruntled judicial applicants. But we get into an argument in those cases about what qualities are necessary. The best, I guess, opinion that I ever saw in it, and obviously it is a matter of opinion, and usually based on the life experience and the professional experience of whoever's expressing it was Robert Sweeney, who was the first chief judge of the district court. I've written articles on what he said were the 10 qualities that he thought based on his 40 years in that roughly since 1970 before he passed on. And I do think that a sense of humor is important, which is not textbook quality. I think humility is important. I always quote the columnist Kathleen Parker's father, who she quoted saying, you know, it's good to have an opinion, you might want to be a little uncertain. You express your opinion as a judge knowing that there's another court that'll look at it if, if somebody wants them to. And so that should give you some degree of humility.
1: How did you feel about that when people would appeal from a circuit court ruling of yours and they would wander around the Court of Special Appeals or Court of Appeals? Did you feel invested in your decision at all? Would you be unhappy if they overturned it? How, what was your reaction?
0: I My attitude was that I had a job to do. I had done it as well as I could, and they had a job to do, and that they would do it as well as they could. I sometimes disagreed with their decision, just as they obviously had disagreed with mine. That in some cases, I felt, okay, they were right because they had the last word. In other cases, I thought, well, maybe they weren't right, okay? But they had the last word, so they were right. I had four death penalty cases, one of which actually I imposed the death penalty as a result of what a jury under Maryland law required me to do. And it came at a time when everybody thought there would never be another death penalty sentence in Prince George's County. And that was appealed uh, four times for different reasons, including post-conviction. It was also the subject of three petitions to the Supreme Court of the United States. And my attitude was that I did what I could. I did the best I could. It was ultimately affirmed across the board and by everybody that ever looked at it, either in substance or procedurally. But I thought they had a job to do, and, and, and I didn't have any doubt they were trying to do it as well as possible, just as I was. I sat on the appellate court, uh, the Court of Special Appeals, seven times. And, did you uh, like that? I sat on there enough to know that that's not what I wanted to do. That's fair. Uh, but I had a great panel on my... Well, I think all but three times, four out of the seven times my panel just by coincidence happened to be Judge Joe Murphy and my friend, Judge Glenn Harrell. I do hold one unique distinction, I think. I am the only judge, I think, who was ever sued in an original action that was filed in the Court of Appeals. Wow. And when I found out about it, which from the attorney general's office who represents judges when they get sued. I was trying to get people to bet with me as to how long it would be after somebody on that court saw it, because it sought a mandamus from the Court of Appeals, which is an order to tell a judge or someone else that you can't or cannot do something. I had ruled in a discovery issue, and the lawyers, who ought to have known better without saying who they were, from Chicago with local counsel filed a uh, complaint for a writ of asking the Court of Appeals to order me to reconsider my discovery ruling.
1: So was this on an interlocutory basis?
0: Yes, there was a case in which, it's a public record, so the Supreme, uh, it was a case of a lady, I don't remember her name, but the plaintiff was uh, called Sears and Roebuck and said, I'd like to hire the Sears and Roebuck carpet cleaning company. And they sent somebody, unfortunately, the person they sent, who showed up in a Sears truck with a Sears uniform and Sears paperwork and Sears everything, did clean carpet, also sexually assaulted the daughter of oh, the hard. person who called them. The person who did that was in jail at the time of the civil trial. The lawsuit was brought against Sears, who at the time, from the lowest level clerk that they talked to in the, in the store that was called to the highest level said, we don't even know if this person was working for us. We had, we don't admit anything. We don't, know who, we don't know who hired him. We don't know the attorney. Uh, I'll give him a plug. Uh, was Kevin McCarthy, who as you know was a very good lawyer, and uh, and he did it right. He kept uh, noting the deposition of uh, working his way up the, the bureaucracy, and his purpose was to have these people keep saying we don't know anything. He then noted the uh, deposition of the president of Sears and Roebuck of America, and. The argument to quash the summons and the subpoena for his deposition and to, to his stitum was he wouldn't know anything. He doesn't know anything about this kind of thing. I said, so, well, I think I understand. That's exactly what Mr. McCarthy's point is. If you're willing to stipulate, then he knows. Then, okay. If not, I'm going to grant it. And he said he'll go to Chicago. He's going. I'm going to allow him to ask three questions. If the answer is no or no, I don't know to all three questions, he's done. He's agreed to do that. At which point I'm paying more attention. That was the ruling, you know, and I had no thought that somebody could sue me about it. But, uh, uh do, well, and they did. And the only thing I couldn't understand is why a local council didn't tell Chicago. I'm sure that the president of Sears and Roebuck of America, whose name I remember because they kept bringing it up in the courtroom was Edward Martinez and he said that, uh, I'm sure he said to his lawyers in Chicago, who is this Judge Platt? Where is Upper Marlboro, Maryland? And if you can't get this taken care of, I'll take care- I'll find somebody who can. But the side story that, who has a great sense of humor and then was then on the Court of Appeals, my neighbor and friend, 40 years, Judge Harrell, was on the Court of Appeals at the time, called me to give him a ride home. I said, I can't, I'm litigating your courtroom. And I explained what I just explained to you. And he responded by saying, if you don't give me a ride home, you'll be amazed at what happens in your case. Ultimately, the case was dismissed, but I've saved the briefs. And, I uh, and, and that's my claim to fame home. when when the historians assess my career, that will be the one that jumps out. Cause I think I'm I don't think anyone else has ever been sued in that way.
1: Gotta be in your autobiography.
0: That's right, it is. <laughs>
1: So we have very little time left, but I wanted to touch on a couple of things. One of our guests last week was CeCe Pays, and we happened to be talking about who the next guest He said, oh, I'm working on something with Judge Platt, because she's very much involved in the mediation, ADR world. How is it that you two have come together?
0: I've known and respected her for a long, long time as a trainer and as a mediator, and we've done programs together before. And we are working on a project, in fact, we're working on two, but uh, one of them uh, we refer to as the elephant in the room, okay, which is when, when, when you're the mediator in a nutshell and you discover somebody is, one of the parties or even one of the lawyers is doing something unethical, what are your obligations? It's pretty clear what a, the obligation of a lawyer is and even a judge, but it's unclear since because of the confidentiality requirement in a mediation... Sure. Where you hear about it in confidence, and so then, what's the
1: basic? What is the basic solution to that in a minute or less?
0: Basic solution of, for starters is for everybody to agree on what the solution is.
1: Okay, okay. But I mean that point. requires disclosure to both sides.
0: But correct, and then the question is if that can't be used as leverage in the negotiations, and uh, so in a mediation, for instance, if there's a disciplinary action pending against any uh, lawyer or whoever or a professional, you cannot read as a part of a settlement of a case for that to be dropped by the complainant or otherwise. I got you. Uh, A lot of them don't know that.
1: So how uh, often does that kind of phenomenon occur?
0: Let's put it this way, more often than it should. Okay. And again, it's hard to say because, you know, by definition, any sampling that I would have would be my cases, and then that's not a scientific sample.
1: Sure, sure. But anecdotally, it occurs more often than one would like.
0: Correct. And more often than one should.
1: So with a couple of minutes left, what are you up to presently? I know there's all kinds of things going with the Platt Group. And if you could just talk generally about that, so our
0: listeners... I have written a book. In fact, the reason I'm dressed up is that a publisher who is, again, more optimistic than I am about there being a market beyond my family and friends. But I've written a book that I would describe as a memoir... Because before I went on the bench, as I often kid friends and people who've known me before that, I was very heavily involved in politics. I didn't see that as a disqualifying factor for going on the bench, although some did. And so I've written a book that uh, that I've entitled My Life in and Out of Court, Lessons Lived and Learned. It starts off with uh, my immigrant grandfather coming over from Russia via stowage and ends with what I'm doing now. Gotcha. Uh, and a letter to my three grandchildren telling them how I want to be remembered because they're going to read it a long time after I'm gone.
1: So does it just focus on the whole breadth of your career and kind of less? It slow? does.
0: It does. And so I'm looking forward to it. As I said to, the, to my publisher, again, who's more optimistic than I am based on what she saw and read and edited, by the way, that, you know, I just look at it as marketing it. It was going to be a fun time. Uh, I like the concept. If you, if you invite me back, I'll have signed copies for uh, everybody who watches your program. So in preparation for today's show,
1: I did read some of your recent publications, The Role of the Judge in Our Society and the Role of Financial Forensic Consultants in Alternative Dispute Resolution. I had intended, as I often do in these shows, to get to these things. Do so you want to give us a brief pitch on each of them so we can interest readers?
0: Well, I've been uh, lucky enough to have a lot of cases in which what I would call financial forensic testimony was required. and what I've done is and they've sort of adopted me and I've adopted them. they're, they're professional expert witnesses and uh, right,
1: financial matters
0: on financial matters. and they do credentialing. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to be invited to keynote their annual meetings twice in the last three years. I'm doing it again this year. And on their role, and what I consider to be the possibility of an expanded role, as the courts around the country, not as much in Maryland, frankly, as some other places, start appointing their own experts. And that some of these people, have, uh, not all, just like a, all, contrary to popular opinion, all judges are not great mediators. Some can't make the transition. But uh, some of these people are, would be very good mediators. Some of them are experts. Some of them are very well equipped to be special magistrates. Some will be employed by special magistrates or by trial judges or, and so forth. And so uh, I see them, uh, like everything else in the world that we live in, changing. And they look at me as somebody who could give them a, a different perspective than the, most of them have because of my own background. I've been a consultant in Russia for fact I went there with Judge Wilner three times. I said, look what happened when we stopped going.
1: Now you probably uh, need to go back and
0: clean and, things uh and, and also in Dubai for uh, three weeks. So, uh, you know, a lot of opportunities as a result of, quote, retiring. But uh, your initial point is correct. I'm busier now than I was, and I'm not complaining.
1: I regret to say that we have run out of time with regard to today's interview with Judge Stephen Platt. But I'd like to thank Judge Platt very much for his appearance today.
0: Thank you for having me. enjoyed it. Take care. On
1: Everyday Law, I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell.
0: Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.